Do you want to start us off? I think I think you should start us off. Yeah, I think I'm the one that should start since this sparked my interest in the first place. So I watched a talk by this brave young woman called Rada. These talks, they're given in a little coffee shop in Beirut, and they're called Hekaya. It's kind of like a storytelling night where people tell their stories in front of a live audience. Live talks like the moth. Yeah, kind of like the moth, but like Arab style in downtown Beirut. And this storytelling night was actually founded by one of our producers, Dana. If it's your first time at Hakaya, the way it works is that storytellers tell true stories live to an audience. So we're going to have six storytellers tonight that will be telling uh, true stories from their life to you. And we'll go one after the other. We are going to begin. Sadia, do you want to begin? And there was a particular okay, story that really struck us, a story from a young Lebanese woman, Rada, who got up there and spoke about her complex relationship with her own hijab. As an Arab, I actually have never heard the story of a woman struggling with her hijab. I've only heard two opinions, and those opinions make up so much of the discourse around us. Either she was all for it, or either she was all against it. And as Kerning Cultures, we love telling the stories of the in-between. So today on Kerning Cultures, and in these first days of Ramadan, we're going to share with you the stories of four women in different corners of the globe and their relationships with their hijab. As always, we're not here to dissect religious interpretations. We're not here to condone wearing the hijab or not wearing the hijab. We just felt it was important for these four women to share their stories. And these stories will be spread over a two-part series of four acts. Each act the story of a different woman and her relationship with her hijab. As a disclaimer, our second act makes brief reference to mature content. I'm Hiba Fisher. And I'm Razana Zayani, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Act 1, Rada. This was edited from her original talk in Beirut. At that moment, I was pulling my pants up and that's when I realized something that was red and I thought I was bleeding to death. And I panicked. I didn't tell my mother anything. I didn't know what it was. It happened uh, once a month, but maybe it was like a process of dying. So I just went on (laughs) and, you know, I was second month, third month until that moment when I was almost 12 when this all happened. So I was on my way to camp and my mother came in all of a sudden before the bus arrived and she told me, why didn't you tell me that it was happening? And then she said, why didn't you tell me you were having your period? And that was when I kind of understood why I was bleeding every month. And and then that moment she slipped a pad for me and she told me, "Now, now you're a woman. What came along with it was the veil. So when my mother told me that since you're now adult at 12 years old, (laughs) you must wear the veil. It's something you go on wearing it your whole life. And at 
ever since I was very obedient about it, I told her, okay, since this is what adult people do, I'll do it. And I put it on uh, during camp. I remember the first day I ever went to school wearing it. Nobody recognized me, so I walked in, sat down, and there was my math teacher. And she looked at me and said, hey, are you new here? And I just told her, no, I'm just Rada wearing the veil. It's new. And, you know, trying to get other people to accept me, it was very tough. Everybody would tell me that you can't do what we do. You can't go to the swimming pool like we do. You can't go, you know, shopping for things like we do, like the rest of us. So all my high school years, I went on believing that I was different, but a different that was shone out. Something, someone who wasn't like everyone else, but not in a special way. Up until last year. So it's been confusion from 12 years old to I'm 23. This year, there was this one day when I, I was really fed up with the, with the veil and I was on my desk, it was very hot and I felt like there was something suffocating me on my neck and I, and I really needed to let it go. It wasn't a piece of cloth, it was some kind of uh, judgmental, uh, symbolic representation of how I suffered all those years. I remember taking it off in the room because there was nobody else and then it struck me. Why was I doing that? Why was I wearing it in the first place? And that was when I started doing research on hijab discourse. That was when I began understanding where did it come from? Why is it different in different cultures? And that was when I decided maybe I should try a different type of veil. Maybe a different type of veil is a different type of me, you know, constructed based on the type of person I want to be. And that's when I started wearing a turban. I didn't know how to put it on, it was very confusing, and I felt everybody staring at me every time I walked on the street, why are we even wearing it, what's the matter? So, when I was walking on the street one day, and two women in their 30s come up to me, they told me, hi, can you teach me how to wear your turban the way you do? And they were not veiled. They told me we want to wear the veil by the end of the month, and we want, we want something that you know, we feel comfortable in, and you seem comfortable in it. And that was when it kind of blew my mind, because that was the moment when it all fell into place. I wasn't trying to wear something on my head because of what I heard about it from other people, from my mother, relatives, culture, society, but rather wear this because I'm trying to find myself in it. And with that comes a lot of realization that there is something called love, but not love of what you're wearing or pleasing people around you, but the love for yourself, who you are. Acts 2, Khalisa. I guess my childhood feels like a lot of road trips. My parents played Cat Stevens in the car and we'd fight over the aux cable. We were always like the goofy Stevens. I'm Khalisa Stevens. I'm American Malaysian. I was born in Iowa. We moved to Malaysia. I did preschool in Malaysia. And then we moved to Kuwait. Moved here in Dubai. I've lived here for 13 years. I'm the eldest of four kids. And so the six of us were like our own little tribe. I think we lived a fairly charmed life. We're not rich, but living in the Middle East has afforded us a lot of luxuries. So we were able to fly between the States and Malaysia every year. Well, religion played a huge role. My dad, when he met my mom in this like international students conference or something in Iowa, she was wearing hijab and he thought she was a Hindu. Uh, he'd never met anyone who wasn't a white 
Protestant, Iowan. But then she told him she was Muslim. And this was the 80s, so he had to drive to Chicago to find a Quran. He converted to Islam, and they got married. Uh, my dad was very serious. You know that honeymoon phase when people convert? His beard was as long as my mom's hijab. It was like a competition between them when you look at their old photos. My white family, they were pretty tolerant just because my dad was sort of living this average Iowan teenage life, like dropping in and out of school, dabbling with drugs, alcohol problem, not getting anywhere in life, like most of his peers. And then suddenly he cleaned up his act and he quit drugs and he quit drinking and he started studying and he graduated from his degree. And he's like, guys, I want to marry this chick. And they're like, okay, well, if she's the reason why you've cleaned your act, like, that's fine. So my dad got a job as a fluke to Kuwait University. Kuwait University was hiring like crazy because this was right after the Gulf War. My parents really wanted Islam to be the center of our lives. So we would go to Jama prayers as a whole family, three girls and one boy, but it was all of us, mom, dad, everyone. I guess 1999 or something. I just turned 12 or something and all the slightly older girls were putting on hijab and my parents were like, oh, when are you putting on hijab? And it was a given in my family and in my community that the girls would. And I, I hadn't gotten my period yet, and that's usually when you put on the hijab. And my parents were like, yeah, that'll be around the corner, you know, when you're 13, that's the age. But, uh, you know, when do you want to put it on? So we were getting into talks, and I was like, okay, maybe after summer, so I can swim in pools and stuff when we go back to the States. And after summer, I'll put on hijab and wear a bra and wear high heels. So it was a coming of age thing for me. I just remember putting it on and, you know, Kuwait and our community, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was just like, oh, you're wearing it, mashallah, okay. And moving on, you know? Everyone knew I was still like this goofy kid, like in prepubescent stages, you know? It's just a, okay, awkward, lumpy dump kid is like putting on the hijab now. One by one, the three of us ended up putting on the hijab. And uh, that made four of us in the family which you can imagine after 9-11, flying back into the States for Mahajibas and a, a white guy and like a little boy <laughs> at the same time. And then sometimes with my dad, to look at his passport like, oh, Mark M.S. Stevens. Oh wait, the M is Muhammad? And <laughs> so we'll all get randomly checked. There was not one year where I wasn't checked when I wore hijab. Over time, I started to become very bitter. It's this feeling of being rejected from what should be home. Even these like small microaggressions, like your English is so good. Like, thanks, my parents are English teachers. And it made me feel like, you know, there's like some club and they don't like me. It's hard to feel like you're being ignored by the cool kids, you know? And especially when you are technically genetically part of the cool club, but they're not letting you join. During the 9-11 years, I was a very exemplary Muslim, I guess, or a very exemplary hijabi. People who wanted to ask about Islam or debate or stuff, I was always up for it. I was always ready to defend myself. It wasn't about so much defending Islam as like defending my community. It was just also, I think I was just a really impassioned kid. I was getting into arguments with everyone. So it was a very taxing uh, teenagehood, I guess. We were so comfortable and goofy and zany, it wasn't hard for us to make friends. But even here in, in Dubai, I went to a high school where sometimes there were kids who transferred from the UK and just uh, immediately be dismissive. So for these new kids to come and snub us, the rest of the school would be acutely aware that it's because of the hijab. 
And most of the time we'd win them over and sometimes we didn't. But it took those years of fighting. That's why six, eight years later, I just got really tired where I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? Like, I feel like I'm responsible for entire religion, which I don't think I am. I'm responsible for answering for an entire community, which I don't think I am. One of my mom's uh, non-Muslim colleagues was like, Khalisa, I caught you smoking one day by the library. That's really bad. And I was like, I know. And she's like, yeah, especially since you cover. I was like, wait, not because of the cancer? <laughs> like, you're, you're concerned for my reputation? You're not even Muslim. Get out of here. I really wanted anonymity. I just wanted to disappear and just be left alone. I used to really believe that hijab was part of the faith. But over time, once I started to realize in college, uh, taking all these like humanities courses and talking with other people and being exposed to like Fatima Mernisi or uh, Huda Sharawi and stuff, it made me kind of realize that you can be Muslim without hijab. And religion can be personal. It doesn't have to be a billboard. And that really, event over time, hijab represented to me more like a warrior's mm -hmm. shield. Like if you put on this shield, you have to be ready to fight. And I was tired and I didn't want to fight anymore. <laughs> I just wanted everyone to leave me alone and just uh, have religion be my personal thing. Um, but being in college, uh, you know, students that I respect in class would invite me out and then they'd order drinks or something. And I'd have to sort of reconcile these competing ideas of like what's right and wrong. You know, these good people drink, is that wrong? Does that make them bad? Uh, it was an evolution, a very long drawn out evolution where because I'd been excluded for so long, whenever I go back to the States, I just wanted people to see me as complex and acceptable and see what I'm about. And that made it easier for me to accept others around me. And people who don't pray, people who party, people who have sex outside of marriage. And uh, when I started to feel like what they were doing is not wrong, that's when it was occurring to me that maybe taking it off won't be wrong. Translating into action was very hard, but it would be another two years before I take it off. Actually, it was just a very painful family experience once the time came. And for me, it was like ripping off a Band-Aid. I'm just going to tell them, they're going to be upset, and then we'll all get over it. And I was trying to prime them for this conversation where I'm like, how do you feel about women who don't wear hijab, but they call themselves Muslim? And they were like, no, of course, you know, in Islam, you're supposed to accept, blah, blah, blah. But once the conversation came, my parents were not okay. And I had to, not had to, I just waited another two years before... I actually took it off just because the subject was just so painful and my family was so close. It just didn't feel right to have like any bad blood between us, you know, because now we want to go out to Chili's and go watch a movie like old times. And, you know, am I going to bring this up again? And, and for those two years, it was just a lot easier to keep it on and like love my family and have them love me back than like cause all this discomfort. Sometimes it was just like, oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'll just keep it on. <laughs> just because, uh, like, I'd never faced such a huge disruptive challenge in my life before that. I think with my dad, it was, honestly, it was lazy parenting. Because his reaction was like, if you take it off first, then next thing you know, you're going to be at bars or something with guys. And I was just like, I was really offended as a Mahajibah. Like, you think this is a chain or a cage to keep me trapped so I don't go out? The hijab doesn't stop you from doing these things. Like, that's your own moral code. 
And then I was like challenging my parents with the stuff that I'd learned. You know, my parents' initial reaction was like, wow, you read like one book and now you think you're the expert. And so I went back with more books and eventually like I overheard my mom talking to a friend during these like difficult years and she was like you know with these kids like you tell them one thing and then they come back with another and it's genuinely hard to argue sometimes and I was like whoa I think I'm convincing my mom we went to a concert um the Vans Warped Tour in Chicago and at concerts you can kind of get away with it people wear bandanas and hats and stuff so it was usually like we tie a bandana, put a hat over it, and people would assume we were just like rocker kids or something. <laughs> just another concert goer. And then like I was with my sister or something and we'd split and there was a mosh pit or whatever and then my bandana slipped off. And I was like, whoa, oh my God, it slipped off. Oh my God, the whole world sees me. Oh my God, no one noticed me. Oh wow, I'm, in, I'm invisible. This is so liberating. Like no one sees me. And then I just like conveniently forgot where my bandana was for a little bit and then I found it again. Um, but that like, little taste of freedom, I guess, was really intoxicating. Just like having no one notice me and just like completely blending into a crowd. You, you met your husband when you wore hijab. So he knows you like with and without, obviously. But you said he didn't care, but you really <laughs> cared. Can you tell me more about that? Um, he met me and we liked each other and he thought I was cute. And then one day I was like telling him, you know, I'm planning to take this off. What do you think? He was just like, okay. And I'd never met anyone who didn't have an opinion on this, you know, very controversial topic. I was like, are you serious? You don't care? Does that mean you don't care about me? He's like, you're your own person. And that uh, if you want to keep it on or take it off, it's fine. And I was just like, what is this? Like this person who doesn't care that I have full autonomy or full agency and no protectiveness. Not that I wanted him to be protective. It's just I thought he'd feel one way or another. He was just like, no, it's cool. I mean, it's your decision. I don't have a say in it. It's I can't tell you what to do. Oh my God, you're like amazing and horrible <laughs> at the same time. Whereas my sister ended up taking it off sooner than I did uh, just because she was kind of the rebel child. My parents would be like, we are not a skinny jeans family. And she'll just go ahead and wear skinny jeans. <laughs> and with her hijab, but like a long shirt, you know? I didn't realize my sister had been suffering depression, actually, dealing with the hijab. Her experience with it was so different. She intensely felt excluded from the mainstream narrative. And her British friends and her friends who drank and her friends who partied, she'd been battling with her own demons. And I think she's tried to talk to me, but back then I was the golden child. I'm like, no, Islam needs to be defended. And I think she tried to talk to my mom and my mom had managed to convince her that like, no, this is the right way and you have to keep it on. And I only know this now that because she's told me later that she had just come to accept that she needs to wear hijab forever. When one day I turned around and I was like, I think I'll take it off. And her reaction was like, no, you don't. <laughs> and she found these pamphlets from the mosque and she was slipping them under my door. And it was just like, why I chose hijab, a woman's story. <laughs> I was like, why would you let me be who I am? And she's like, because I can't. I was like, whoa, I didn't even know you were going through that. Like, that's how she's felt like she's been denied. Whereas I just feel like I changed. So... She took it off one year before I did. I still didn't have the guts. Like, it kind of came down to cowardice. But I adjusted my dressing a little bit. Like, I started wearing my hijab up, kind of gypsy style, and shorter sleeves and stuff. And my parents didn't really say anything. And then it gave me so much empathy for 
for other hijabis. Because it's so easy, like when you're, when you're so comfortable in your faith and you believe everything and you practice a certain way, like there's a lot of judgment. I mean, I think we all know that there's a lot of judgment within like hyper-religious circles. So I used to judge these other girls, like she's not even wearing the hijab properly. Why doesn't she just take it off instead of showing like half her hair or wearing a mini skirt with tights, like who's she fooling? And then when I went through that weird transition, I was just like, oh my God, this is probably what they're going through. Like all these like half hijabis probably want to take it off and just there's so much social pressure and family pressure like you can't it's, and it's it feels like real pressure I couldn't sleep it was hard to breathe sometimes and uh you know going against my family and and what felt like sort of my faith but then denying myself my authentic self you know it was an interesting couple of years in transition and it was a transition like my hijab was getting smaller and uh it was turning into a stylish turban and uh, I was wearing like lower collared neck shirts and stuff. Well, the first couple of weeks were kind of unreal. I was still facing reactions on campus where people were like, wait, you're Khalisa, but I thought, you know. But once it normalized, that's when I just felt like this huge burden was taken off of me, mainly because I could stop pretending because I felt like a hypocrite for the last two years. I just felt like every single day since then, has just been like, I'm more sure of my identity. Like, this is who I am. I just felt like I was finally free to be myself. But I continue to be really outspoken for Islam. And that's what I found really shocking because I thought once I took it off, that discourse and stuff will be behind me and I can, you know, practice it the way I want to on a personal level. But I like having that choice because if I'm around someone who's obviously belligerent and ignorant of Islam, I can choose to get engaged this person or I can choose to walk away, which is really freeing. When I wore it, you know, I was not put in that kind of position to choose because this person would be targeting me. And it wasn't something I could easily walk away from. And it wasn't something that I could talk from my own perspective. I would be speaking from the Mahajiva perspective which is so complex, but everybody sees it as just one monotonous, static, monolithic position. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to be releasing part two in the next few days, so watch this space. 